so Acts chapter 7, verse 1 to 8, and 51 to 60. Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile the witnesses laid their coats at their feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep and Saul approved of their killing him. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Well, last week we learned that Stephen was on trial for speaking against God, Moses, the law, and the temple. That is in chapter 6, verses 11 and 14. In chapter 7 this morning, we have Stephen's respond to these charges. While his message uh, overall shows the charges to be false, it is more a sermon that traces God's historical dealings with Israel. Israel's history of rebellion against God. And a climax that indicts his hearers of the very charges that they were bringing against him. They were guilty of rejecting Moses and the law. And even worse, they have just killed the righteous one whom God has sent for the salvation. The first sections of Stephen's sermon, that verses 
2 to 16 deals with Israel's patriarchal period and refutes the charge of blaspheming God. The second section, verses 17 to 43, deals with Moses and the law and responds to the charge of blaspheming Moses and speaking against the law as well. And the third section, verses 40 to 55, deals with the temper and responds to the charge of speaking against the temper. And the conclusion is in verses 51 to 53. It is a scathing denunciation of the Sanhedrin who were following the in the rebellious pattern of their forefathers. Now let's look at the first section in verse 2 and 3. Now Stephen begins his defense in a reconciliating way. He says, brothers and sisters, uh, fathers, he is affirming his oneness with them as a Jew and giving respect to those in the authority. While Stephen initially answers the charge of blasphemies against God by his description of him as the God of glory in verse 2. This phrase is taken from Psalms 92, uh, 29 verse 3. It expresses his position as the Lord of glory and as Lord over creation. He begins by stressing that God appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, making clear by this that God was such that he could speak to man anywhere, even in Babylon. The Hebrew people were likely to say that God dwelt within their geographical city, within the temple. So Stephen is going back to Abraham as the father of the Hebrew people, and he is reminding them, don't forget, Abraham was a pagan. Abraham was an idol worshipper. Abraham was from a foreign country, and God showed up and called Abraham out of the pagan lifestyle. God sovereignly chose Abraham and poured out his grace on him. Then Stephen moved on to second character Joseph in verses 9 to 16. Joseph was rejected by his brothers, the leaders of the covenant community. They rejected Joseph, but verse 9 says, God was with him. So they were opposed to God. They were rejecting his deliverer. So Israel's first deliverer and prophet had initially been desp despised and rejected by the covenant community's leaders and had been sold off, but had been then had been highly exalted by God in order that he might deliver his undeserving people. And although initially, I'm sorry. Yeah. And although initially unrecognized on their first visit, that verse 12, and he was finally recognized by his own people on their second visit, that verse 13, it was no 
it was to be a pattern for the future. Stephen undoubtedly has in mind here and wants his listener to also have in mind that Jesus came and prophesied but was unrecognized. He also was despised and rejected by his brethren, that is, by the religious leaders. He was then sold for the price of a slave, but God raised him to high status that he might deliver his people. The brothers rejected Joseph, who was their redeemer, and that is exactly what they were doing in rejecting Jesus. Who was the Redeemer? Stephen now introduces a third character, Moses, in verses 17 to 43. Stephen spent most of his time on Moses. Stephen quotes Moses as saying, in verse 37, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He is telling them that Moses himself had said that things were going to be changed. Another deliverer was coming. Peter used this same verse in his second sermon, then Acts chapter 3, verse 22. The implication of this verse in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, was that Israel was to expect the coming of another like Moses. He too would be long awaited, would be in danger of his birth, would be offer would then offer himself as deliverer, would be despised and rejected, would perform many signs and wonders, and was one whom God would inevitably raise up against to be their deliverer. The Hebrew people had a tendency to isolate God's presence down to one geographical space, a place. And yet God in the wilderness of Midian said, in verse 33, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Stephen is making the point that the ground is holy wherever God is. You cannot limit him to one geographical space. The Jews in Stephen's day were fiercely loyal to the land, to Jerusalem, to the temple as the only center for worshipping God. So throughout his message, Stephen repeatedly showed that God had worked in many places and ways with his servant down through the centuries. And so worship is not limited to the land of Palestine or to the temple. Again, in verse 36 to 38, he see this idea, we see this idea that God was not tied to a land or to a temple. He was a God of everywhere. As he had proven in Egypt and the wilderness where he had performed his wonders. Next, 
Stephen points out that the Israelites had rejected Moses as judge and ruler over them and had worshipped first the calf in the wilderness. That's verses 40 to 41. And then the heavenly bodies, verse 42. Stephen characterizes the sin by quoting Amos, chapter 5, verses 25 to 27, in verses 42 to 43. They had replaced God with Molech, God of the Amorites, and Rapans, God of Assyria. They had made figures of this God and worshipped them. What was more blasphemous than that? Who was it now? Who had changed the law of Moses and exchanged it for idolatry? Just as the, the rejection of Moses led to false worship and constant breaking of the law, so the continued rejection of Jesus, the prophet like Moses, would mean that Jews will never be freed of their false worship, of uh, the, the idol, uh, idolizing of the temple. It was this spirit of idolatry that would eventually lead to the destruction of the temple and the Babylonian, uh, Babylonian captivity, says verse 43. In the same way, it will be this same spirit of idolatry and refusal of recognize God's righteous one, which will result in the destruction of the second temple at the hands of the Roman Empire. Stephen have answered his accusers, charge that he had spoken against Moses by showing that he believed that what Moses had predicted about the coming prophet, it was really his hearers who rejected Moses, since they refused to allow the possibility of prophetic revelation that superseded the Mosaic law. Now, Stephen moved on to talk about the temple. To the Israelites, the temple had virtually become their God. Now, no, no wonder Stephen's words seem like blasphemy. Stephen's audience boasted in the temple as if it gave them special access to God. In spite of their wicked behavior, Stephen is showing them that the main issue is not the place where they worship, but rather having their hearts right before God. The temple is not the equivalent of the God-given and God-designed tabernacle. Stephen's argument is that God himself, through the prophet Isaiah, had predicted that the temple would not always be an adequate place to worship God. So in quoting Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2, in verses 49 to 50, Stephen would appear to imply that as Christ is the new Moses, 
He is also the new temple. In him and through him alone can man approach God. Stephen reminded the Sanhedrin that the temple, which they venerated excessively, was not the primary venue of God's people and work. He was arguing that Jesus was God's designated replacement for the temple, as the writer of the epistles of Hebrews also taught. This assertion that the transcendent God is not confined to things made by human hands, verse 48, would have jotted his hearers. The Jews commonly use made by human hands to refer to idol worship. To apply this phrase, a phrase to the temple would well enrage them. The final conclusion from his argument could only be that the temple was not the final place to which man should look. He should look to God, the God who rules the heavens to the tabernacle, uh, to, to the eternal tabernacle. No building is the house of God, or even was. Even the temple, as Stephen points out here, was not rightly called the house of God. Up to this point, Stephen has, on the whole, aligned himself with them. Notice, for example, uh, he used a phrase, our fathers, like in verses 38, 39, 44, and 45. But from now, suddenly, he changes tone in order to apply his message. From this point on, he disassociates himself from his listener. I speak firmly of you in verse 51. The Sanhedrin were guilty on unresponsiveness to God's word and of betraying and murdering the righteous one. Verse 52. By rejecting Jesus, the Sanhedrin were doing just what their forefathers had done in rejecting God's other anointed servant, such as Joseph and Moses. They were stiff-necked in verse 51, a figure of speech for self-willed. Moses used this expression to describe the Israelites when they rebelled against God and worshipped the golden calf. Their guilt was all the greater because though they had received God's law, they had disobeyed it. They were the real blasphemers. Why is the reaction of to the Stephen sermon? From verse 54, they say, When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashing their teeth at him. The council reacted so violently because Stephen's word convicted and offended the members of Sanhedrin. Stephen had hit the nail 
on the head. They were now forced to kill him as well, because they either had to kill Stephen or admit that they were wrong in killing Jesus. Stephen said in verse 56, I see heaven open. He was being given a vision of what was usually veiled. He was being allowed to see into the spiritual world. Heavens opened up for his view. And he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Verse 55. And he was standing because he was ready to greet and receive his servant. This situation was getting the situation was getting tense. The Sanhedrin were very angry and about to erupt. So Stephen looked to the Lord, and the Lord gave him a heavenly vision. Stephen's last word was the straw that broke the Sanhedrin's back. They absolutely lost all rationalities at that point. To them, Jesus was a criminal. And there was something even worse than that. He had died on the cross. But Stephen saw that Jesus was at God's right hand. This meant that Jesus had the same authority as God. The Sanhedrins turned into riots, become a mob, yelling at the top of their voices, and end up stoning Stephen to death. Verses 57 and 58. Stephen becomes the church's first martyr. Verse 58 says, Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. It indicated a position or some authority and direct identification with the deeds even though Saul did not participate. While he would not himself cast stones, possibly because he felt that it was not the position of a would-be rabbi to do so. He never forgot this moment. It burned its way into his soul. Later in Acts, Paul says, in Acts chapter 22, verse 20, And when the blood of your martyr, Stephen, was shed, I stood there, giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Verse 59, back in chapter 7, While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen's death is the only death sin and martyrdom described in, the, in detail in the New Testament, except for the death of Jesus Christ. We can here compare Jesus' own words on the cross. In Luke chapter 23, verse 46, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he has said this, he breathed 
his last. Stephen was going like his master. Verse 60, Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. We can hardly doubt that he had in mind again the words of Jesus on the cross. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Stephen, like his Savior, called upon God to receive his Spirit. His last words, like those of Jesus, were words of compassion. He prayed for the forgiveness of those who had sinned by taking his life. Stephen was like Jesus in life and in death. Now, how do we read Acts chapter 6 and 7 in the context of the book of Acts? It's good to just read chapter 6 in isolation, but it's important to see the whole picture. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 outlines how the gospel moved from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and to the remote third part of the earth. As we approach Acts chapter 6 and 7, the story begins to change direction. The focus slowly but surely shifts from Peter as the center apostle to Paul. And the global mission begins to dominate. In the next six chapters, as we mentioned last week of the book of Acts, Liu explained how the foundations of the Gentile mission were laid by two remarkable men. First, Stephen the martyr and Philip the evangelist, followed by two remarkable conversions, Saul the Pharisees and Cornelius the centurion. These four men, each in their own way, together with Peter, through whose ministry Cornelius was converted, make an indispensable contribution to the world evangelization. The preaching of the gospel in the initial chapters of the book of Acts is basically on the shoulder of Peter. Peter was commissioned as the apostle to the Jews in Jerusalem. Now the story of Peter is coming to an end. And the story of the apostle Paul to the Gentiles is beginning to open up. Paul is introduced at the end of chapter 7, we have read, and begins to unfold in chapter 8. Next week, we're going to look at it. So we are seeing the end of Peter and the beginning of Paul. The diagram shows you how the transition takes place. And Stephen filled the bridge in the middle. He ministered to Jews, but they were the Hellenistic Jews. Last week we explained a bit. They are the Greek-speaking Jews. 
So he is very much a bridge. Stephen is also a bridge between Peter and Paul because Peter's ministry was dominated in Jerusalem while Paul's ministry went to the world. Stephen was a catalyst that sent the church from Jerusalem into the world. And he did it very indirectly. He did it by being martyred. So the church was thrown out of Jerusalem in consequences of the death of Stephen, which is exactly what God wanted to happen anyway. Because Jerusalem was done at that point. The church had really reached those that God had in that city at that moment. Because at this juncture, the Jerusalem leader said in chapter 5, verse 28, You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And the people who had been favorable all of a sudden turned hostile and killed Stephen. Which says to us that God had accomplished his purpose for the moment. He had redeemed the elective Jerusalem. And those who were now remaining in Jerusalem were the hostile ones towards Christ. Therefore, they had accomplished their task. It was time to move on. And so, Stephen is a transition between Peter and Paul. He is a transition between the evangelization of Jerusalem and the evangelization of the world. In a very real sense, Stephen is a forerunner of Paul. Now, let's turn our attention to Stephen. Now, apart from Stephen being strategically important, historically, he was important because of who he was, the very character of his life. The story of Stephen tells us that the effect of a man's life has nothing to do with the length of it. And the effect of man's, a man's ministry had nothing to do with the length of it. His ministry was so short, so very short, and yet it was the catalyst that caused the church to move out in the next step in its commission and reach Judea and Samaria with the gospel. Stephen was the trigger that shot the church into the world. And I don't think that anybody can fully estimate the results even of a brief work of one man. When that one man has the courage to do and say what he knows is right, whatever the consequences, as Stephen did, he took no thoughts for himself. He did what he knew was right regardless of the consequences. When he was killed, it was a sad loss for the church. It says in Acts chapter 8 verse 2 that they mourned deeply for him. I'm sure they missed him. And yet he didn't die one day sooner than when he had accomplished all that God wanted him 
to accomplish. Dear brothers and sisters, I would like to encourage you to read through Acts chapter 6 and 7 again and to spend time with God to see what it is that God wants to say to you through the life of Stephen. Finally, the sovereignty of God. Many have been saved in previous sermon in Acts. Here and for the first time, the preacher is put to death. Now Stephen is dead. Doesn't it seem like a waste? Here is this spirit-filled man of God who knows the scripture intimately and can debate with the best of them. He could have been a tremendous asset to the church. But now, he's gone. Stephen's death seemed like a sort of disaster at first glance. His ministry also seemed to end in failure, as no one was immediately saved. And all that came forth was more persecution against the church. Stephen's death snowballed into a massive reaction to the entire church in Jerusalem. This intense persecution that broke out against the church caused the saints to scatter. All but the apostle fled. God prospers some sermon for the salvation of many, but he also uses sermons for other purposes. We also see that there is an evangelistic trust resulting from Stephen's sermon. This is an evidence of God's sovereign control. Those who are saved are not the audience of Stephen, but the Samaritans, the Gentiles, who will be saved because of the persecution resulting from Stephen's death. Without knowing it, these Jews are propelling the gospel beyond Jerusalem to the very places from which they have come. Many will be saved because of the sermon and the death of Stephen. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty. Amen.